You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, If we haven't yet met, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Uh, The guy who most Sundays gets to preach God's word, surely going to do that this morning. I'll go ahead and invite you actually to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in the first four verses of of that chapter this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, use it during our time together this morning. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that with you as the church's gift to you. Uh, This morning's passage will be up on the screen behind me too as we work our way through it. As you're you're opening up to those four verses that we're going to sit with this morning, um, this past Friday evening, once a year, we do a, a network lead pastor and wives retreat with about a half a dozen of us in the state of Georgia. We always go to somewhere centrally located and uh, camp out for a night or two. Not literally, we stay in a house, but we do fire pit our way through most of that experience. And there are a lot of really good conversations that happen around that fire pit over the course of those couple days. And one of the things that came up in conversation this go around was um, the, this idea of spiritual experiences and what to make of them in terms of their authenticity. Um, many of us have experiences in the church growing up we could look back to and we have our questions of, of what experiences were truly a work and, and a, a moving of God and, and what was maybe you know something pseudo categorically. And uh, one of the things that that came to mind as we were having this conversation, I was brought back to where we sat and camped out last week in Colossians chapter two, what James and I have been teasing out for the last couple of weeks. Um, this idea that though we don't know down to the sordid details what the false teaching in uh, the city of Colossae that were creeping into the church were, categorically, we can at least in, in broad brushstroke sort of way hone in on, on two categories. One, religious practices that were taking on the form of legalism and two, spiritual experiences that were taking on the form of mysticism, both of them absent of Christ, apart from the gospel. <clears throat> and I, I mentioned as we were sitting around the fire pit talking about these things, I said, you know, I, I think if, if I'm the enemy, one of, one of the greatest strategies I think would be to, to just aim at those two categories with individual believers and with the church corporately to create just enough confusion because at the end of the day, We want to walk in obedience, right? Which externally can look a lot like the legalist as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we seek to live out the commandments of scripture. We want to experience God. And so these these two things, spiritual experiences and religious practices, they, they in right orientation to Jesus and the gospel, they They have their place and yet we can distort them just enough that that we then become skeptical, right? We become skeptical of obedience, of any sort of imperatives in scripture, commands. Paul's gonna go there in chapter three. We look at that and we go, that feels like a threat to salvation by grace alone, no thank you. And then we become the church that in the name of gospel centrality has no presence of 
spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience as a part of our culture. We become skittish of experiencing God, of abiding in him, though Paul talks about wanting to know the fullness of what it is uh, to be in union with Christ. And so just something to keep in mind as we keep working our way through this book of the Bible, uh, as we step into other books of the Bible, if I were, if I could say it this way, for those who may be familiar with the terminology, if I were gonna write a couple screw tape letters, I think there would be one on religious practices and one on spiritual experiences. And I would, I would write it in such a way that let, let's subtly create confusion in the church and seek to distort these things in such a way that we take people off the gospel path and destroy the church subtly. With that said, let me pray for us and we'll dive into these next four verses which come out of that kind of, of thinking. Heavenly Father, Thank you for our time together. The Lord's Day practices uh, that uh, are ours for the taking, the many means of grace that are there, uh, the preaching of your word, the corporate song of the church, the bread and the cup that we call the Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the saints. Lord, there's so many good things that happen when we come into spaces like these. Thank you for the rhythm that we have of doing it every seven days how it humanizes us, the reminder that uh, we can't uh, orchestrate what we're gonna bring into spaces like these as if we could program our lives like a thermostat to be uh, in, in a good place every Sunday at 10 a.m. Sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't. We bring highs into this place some weeks. We bring the deepest of lows into this place some weeks. Some weeks we may bring both. Some weeks we're so convoluted in our thinking and our affections on the basis of what's taken place over the last seven days that we don't really know what we bring into this place. And so I thank you that your word is steady. It's sure uh, in, a, in a sea of uh, moving, rolling waves uh, that, that your word is an anchor for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we open it together this morning, uh, that we would see something of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, and that it would stir our hearts, awaken our minds, or that, that we would walk out of here differently than we came in, and not in a way that perhaps we'll remember five, ten years down the road, as most sermons and their bullet-pointed details are forgotten over the course of time, but simply as a steady diet, or that we just keep coming back to your word to the hope of the gospel, we keep feasting there at that table. And in progressive and in incremental way, you, you change us um, from one degree of glory to another. Uh, Lord, would you do that great work? Holy Spirit, we invite you, we plead with you even to move in power as we sit with your inspired word in front of us. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray, amen. So many scholars agree that, that the book of Colossians is structured so that, if I could put it up on the screen to kind of help us out, it's not perfectly nice and neat. There are some, some overlaps that, that are taking place in this book of the Bible, but most would agree that uh, in a broad brushstroke sense, at least, that you can break up the book of Colossians into chapters one and two being doctrinal, chapters three and four being practical, Chapters one and two, our position in Christ. Chapters three and four, our practice in Christ. Those first two chapters, Christian belief. The last two, Christian behavior. The work of Christ, chapters one and two. The walk of the Christian, chapters three and four. 
sound doctrine to begin the book, spiritual directives to close out the book. The Christian's identity, chapters one and two. The Christian's responsibility, chapters three and four. Orthodoxy to begin, orthopraxy to end. It's kind of the same, different words to say the same thing, right? It's with that structuring in mind that this morning's passage functions something like a, like a hinge on a gate that opens in both directions. On the one hand, these four brief verses that we're gonna look at in just a minute, looking back to the first two chapters, putting an exclamation point on what Paul has declared to this point about Jesus and our union with him. On the other hand, these same four brief verses looking ahead to the last two chapters where Paul will more fully unpack what it means to live in practice what we are in position in Christ being something of a, of a Janus passage in that regard and looking both backward and forward. Back to the first two chapters, the fullness of who Jesus is and who we are in him and forward to the final two chapters, what it is to live in light of our union with Christ. That said, I wanna do something a little different this morning. I think I do this once or twice a, a year as, as we dive into this set of verses. I'm gonna read the entirety of this morning's passage before we dive into it. It'll take but a minute, it's incredibly short. And then I want us to sit with three questions that I think will help us to look both backward and forward. The answer to those three questions taking us out of order, so to speak, so that we're not gonna walk through this morning's passage in sequence as we oftentimes tend to do. And yet I trust that our time in the scriptures this morning will be by God's grace, a faithful exposition of the text, as faithful as I can be, as we draw out and interpret and apply what's there to the glory of Christ for the good and joy of his people. Right, the three questions that we're out to answer being, they're not complicated questions. Number one, what does this passage say about Jesus? Number two, what does this passage say about us as believers? Number three, what does this passage call us to as believers? What does this passage say about Jesus? What does it say about us who are in union with Christ? What does it call us to as those in union with Christ? So with those three questions in mind, picking up Colossians chapter three, verses one through four, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does this passage say about Jesus? What does this passage say about us as believers? And what does this passage call us to as believers? Those are the three questions I wanna camp out on this morning as we sit with these four incredibly brief but wondrous verses of scripture. The first of those two questions, what does this say about Jesus and we who are in union with him? Those first two, looking back to the first two chapters of Colossians, putting an exclamation point again on what Paul has declared to this point about Christ and our union with him. That last question, what is this passage calling us to? Looking forward to what awaits in the final two chapters, where we're going in the book of Colossians. As Paul more deeply unpacks what it is to live in light of our union with Jesus. So let's take them one at a time in order. Question one, what does this passage say about Jesus? 
Notice the past, present, and future language as it pertains to the answer to that question. What does this passage say about Jesus? Past tense, Christ has risen, verse one. Present tense, he is seated at the right hand of God, verse one as well. Future tense, he will appear in glory. Each of those three truths could stand alone as its own sermon. The riches of past, present, and future Christ-exalting glories. Past tense, verse one, Christ has risen. He's alive. We talk about it every Easter, though it's not a doctrine that should stay in the China cabinet every other Sunday of the year. The tomb this day empty, the grave unable to hold Jesus' body down, the risen king crowned with glory, going back to chapter one, preeminent in all things. The resurrection, as I've said before, the bottom corner piece of the Christian Jenga game without which Christianity crumbles to the ground. That's why Paul would say things like 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. That if Jesus has not been raised, the, the preaching of the gospel is an exercise in futility. The gathering of the church, what we're doing right now, the silliest of Sunday hobbies. That if Jesus has not been raised, our faith is worthless, Paul says. Standing among the millions upon millions who have placed our faith in a lie. If Jesus has not been raised, then we're all blasphemers, having testified as true about God, things that are not in fact true about God. If Jesus has not been raised, then we're all lost in our sins, believing we've been set free, though still under sin's curse. If Jesus has not been raised, then our believing loved ones who have passed away are not in Jesus's presence. Our comfort in believing such things, nothing more than a false hope. If Jesus has not been raised, then we Christians, Paul says, are of all people most to be pitied, having devoted our lives and entrusted our destiny to something imagined. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Praise be to the glorious, eternal, risen son of God, the object of our faith, alive and reigning today. What does this passage say about Jesus Past tense, Christ has risen. But lest we look only to the past for the riches of the gospel, Paul declares present tense, verse one, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. For one, a declaration of his kingship, exalted to the place of greatest glory and honor, sovereignly seated above all rule and dominion, chapter two, verse 10 of Colossians having triumphed over the rulers and authorities of this present darkness, chapter two, verse 15. King of kings, Lord of lords. As it says in 1 Peter chapter three, verses 21 and 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, here it is, and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Or as Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his, the glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. High King of heaven, the ruler of all things, seated at the right hand of God. Such language and imagery too, affirming the it is finished of the gospel, as we've talked about before, a visible yes and amen to all that Jesus has accomplished. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, there it is, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's that temple imagery again. There were no chairs in the temple of God because the priest's work, it was never done. Always another sacrifice to be made for sin, the blood of more bulls and goats to be poured out. Having ascended, Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand, a dramatic and glorious visible demonstration of what he had proclaimed from the cross. It is finished seated at the right hand of God. Now our intercessor, our advocate, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 34, who is to condemn if you're in Christ? Christ Jesus is the one who died, Paul says, more than that who was raised, here it is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The ascended high priest of heaven through whom we have access to the mercy and grace we need as we navigate the difficulties of the journey before us, as we keep marching our way toward that celestial city of, of God. What does this passage say about Jesus? Past tense, Christ is risen, verse one. Present tense, he is seated at the right hand of God, verse one. And with those past and present riches, future tense, he will appear in glory. Right? None of this is new information for most of us. We're just spinning the jewel of the gospel right now. The second advent, the, the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels to exercise his final role as judge in the consummation of his kingly rule and kingdom, bringing about the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's where this story's headed, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as our Lord Jesus himself taught and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. In the new heaven, and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And on that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ. All sin purged. Its wretched effects forever banished. And God will be all in all and his people will be enthralled by the beauty and majesty of his indescribable holiness and glory. 
and everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that hope? Here it is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope, the return of heaven's King. The story of the Bible, it's the story of a king willing to die in the place of his enemies rescuing rebellious sinners into the joy and bliss of his eternal kingdom, into that happily ever after, so that perhaps today is the day of salvation for someone in this auditorium, the day to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him, the day to bend your knee in glad submission to the king who will someday return, the appropriate heart posture for we who are in Christ, Amen, come Lord Jesus, before this service even ends. Come now. Which brings me to the second question. The first question, what does this passage say about Jesus? Past tense, Christ has risen. Present tense, he is seated at the right hand of God. Future tense, he will appear in glory. Question two, what does this passage say about us as believers? The answer to that question too, inviting us to bask in past, present, and future riches. Notice, past tense, we have died, verse three, and have been raised with Christ, verse one. Present tense, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, verse three. Future tense, when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory, verse four. Again, each of those three truths could stand alone as its own sermon, the riches of past, present, and future glories that are ours in union with Jesus. What does this passage say about us as believers? Past tense, we have died and have been raised with Christ. Which James unpacked a couple weeks ago by way of the biblical imagery of both circumcision and baptism, going back to chapter two, verses 11 through 13. As Paul says elsewhere, Chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's miraculous creational work of regeneration, the new birth, the word behold in that verse that's up on the screen right now can also be translated look or be stunned. Be stunned that you've been made new in Christ. Marvel at the the miraculous, creational, illuminating work of God's sovereign grace in your life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new covenant, a new name, a new standing, a new home, a new indwelling power, a new destiny. The, The enemy would have us believe that none of those things are true. That's why we fight so hard as a church to grow in gospel fluency that we might declare to our own hearts and to each other all that's true of us and for us in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Romans 6 verse 4, raised to walk in newness of life, blood-bought, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
forgiven and empowered. That's who you are. What does this passage say about us as believers? Past tense, we have died, verse three, and have been raised with Christ, verse one. But again, lest we, we only look to the past tense riches of, of our union with Christ, Paul declares present tense, verse three, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. In one sense, that's a claim on the exclusivity of Jesus. Paul declaring that one cannot be hidden in God apart from Christ. No matter going back to last week, how spiritual we may be, how pious we may be, our only hope of being hidden in God is to be hidden with Christ in God. Verse three, hidden meaning not, not that we live unseen by the, by the world as Jesus describes kingdom of heaven people in Matthew chapter five as the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your father in heaven. Hidden in one sense, and many believe this is a play on words, that there are a couple of ways to see this language. Hidden in one sense, meaning that we are something of a mystery to those outside of Christ, having committed our goals, our ambitions, our lives to a kingdom not of this world. As Paul says in verse four, Christ is our life, so that there is no true life apart from union with him. Going back to last week, there is no body, no church with lifeblood coursing through her veins where there is no dependence upon and holding fast to Christ the head. So that not only, again, is our life hidden with Christ, verse three, but Christ is our life. His sustaining power, the reason we breathe, going back to chapter one. His glory, the reason we exist. His redemptive work, the reason we hope. Hidden in another sense, meaning that we are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. Again, many understanding the word hidden to be a play on words, that we're covered by his blood, that we're robed in his righteousness. Christ, our identity and security. Christ, our life. What does this passage say about us as believers? Past tense, we have died and have been raised with Christ. Present tense, our lives are hidden with Christ in God and with those past and present riches, future tense, when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Coming back to the language of hiddenness, right? We're mistaken right now by many as weak and foolish for what we believe, not knowing those people on the outside looking in that we're destined to reign with Christ in glory someday that what's hidden will be revealed. As Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or how about 1 John chapter 3, verses two and three. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, here it is, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That as Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 18, there's a glory that is to be revealed in us. Someday we who are in Christ, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 43, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. 
Glorified bodies reunited with glorified souls, shining with the brightness of Christ's glory for his glory. Which brings me to the third question. Question one, what does this passage say about Jesus? Christ is risen, verse one. He's seated at the right hand of God, verse one. He will appear in glory, verse four. What does this passage, question two, say about us as believers? Past tense, we have died, verse three, and been raised with Christ, verse one. Present tense, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, verse three. Future tense, when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory, verse four. Question three, what does this passage call us to as believers? So what? In light of who Jesus is and who we are as those in union with him, assuming those riches these past, present, and future glories, that they're true. Paul says, if these things are true, and surely he believes they are, we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is, verse one, to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, verse two. Not so much meaning, and I think our minds naturally gravitate here, some, some sort of spatial orientation as if we we're to, in a Gnostic sort of way, avoid the material world, abandon it. Rather, me, meaning a life lived in light of two kingdoms, two ages, the things that are on earth, meaning that which is earthly in us. Paul will get there in just a minute. We'll get there next week. Verse five, the putting to death the deeds of the flesh as Paul will go on to unpack in the, the passage that follows and on into chapters three and four. Here, exhorting believers to live for Christ and his kingdom. Locked in, heart, mind, and soul. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, Paul says. Seeking, involving an intentional orientation of the will. You don't backdoor your way into these things. It's not something that passively happens to us. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Paul says. Again, an intentional orientation of the mind not something, again, that, that passively happens to us. It's not something into which we stumble. Right? Paul wants us to so believe these truths of who Jesus is and who we are in union with him that we, with great diligence, set our minds, our affections, and our wills on Christ and his kingdom. That our hearts more and more begin to break for the things that hit, break his heart those things in accordance with the kingdom of this world, this age, that our hearts more and more begin to leap for the things that make his heart leap, those things in accordance with the kingdom of God, the age to come, a seeing and savoring of things above more than all things above, Christ himself, until our thinking, our feeling, and our acting are shaped by Christ, the object of our seeing and savoring. Connecting things back to the false teaching, having made its way into the Colossian church, Sam Storm says, holiness, in this case, the ability to say no to the indulgence of the flesh and the passionate desire to walk in the way of Christ. If that's what we mean by holiness, he says, that comes not primarily from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, but from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Lord and all that we are in him in the heavenlies. Right, Paul's aim is, 
is that believers not be taken captive by the whispers of the world with its fleeting pleasures, its empty promises, its hollow religion even. Rather, that we would interpret our very lives and the world around us. And this is a moment by moment, decision by decision thing. This is where a sermon can only go so far and we gotta work this out. That we would interpret our very lives and the world around us through the lens of all that's true of Christ and we who are in union with him. All of the past, present, future riches of the gospel informing, shaping our, our thoughts, our affections, our decisions, mind, heart, and will. And that's, that's the Christian life. Bringing glory to heaven's king and joy to his people. This is one of those weeks I'm, I'm excited to break out into community groups and wrestle with these things because we, we do have to take these wondrous truths and now apply them to real life situations and circumstances, workplace dynamics, family relationships and strain, holiday dilemmas to come, all the stuff. We gotta work it out in real time. But we have what we need to do that as a foundation, as a jewel that we can spin as we, as we seek to do that very thing. All that's true of Jesus, past, present, and future, and all that's true of we who are united to him, past, present, and future, informing how we have those conversations. So what I wanna do right now is just give us a couple minutes before we jump right into the next song to sit for a second and to to ask the Lord, so what? Each of us has a next thing in front of us that is practical, it is tangible, it is in real time. And I, I just wanna invite us to sit for just a couple of minutes as James comes back up and begins to prepare us to bring our collective song before the Lord to, to just sit with what, what's the next decision that, that would cause me to wrestle with these two kingdoms, these two ages and the implications of all that we've sat with this morning and to make a decision that would be in accordance with the things above. What do you have for me, Lord? What's the walk away, the takeaway from this morning that's, that's practical, that's tangible, that's real? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.